morning again. Um, man, that, who was that? That was awesome. Thank you. That was very good. Um, I feel like I'm having such a good morning now. So, um, hey, uh, man, what a sweet time of worship in the, uh, to kind of start our service this morning. Um, man, I, feel, I told Jacqueline when they were done, like that last song that we sang, man, I can sing that every week. Like, I need reminding of that, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but I need, I need reminding um, that the Lord is faithful. You know what I mean? Like, that the Lord is faithful and that he remains steadfast and committed to the salvation of sinners and that he remains steadfast and committed to the sanctification of his people, that he sustains us like we saw last week as we started our time in Mark chapter 8. That is... um. We just need to sit in that for a minute, right? Like, you see that as we come in, as we uh, prepare to approach our time um, in God's Word today, we need to uh, be reminded as, as individuals and as a fellowship that, um, that Christ is good, you know? Like, Christ is, is good, and um, He is our joy, He is our satisfaction, and we're going to um, see from this morning's passage uh, that, that we are often, as a people, in need of being reminded of who God is and what he has done. And so um, we're going to go to Mark chapter 8 in just a moment. And so um, go ahead and and open up to Mark chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can do that. You can turn on to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, perhaps we have a few that are still available in the front. You have my permission to go and grab one of those. And as you're turning, I want to draw your attention to this guy right here. Okay, Um, This thing is uh, hanging up on our new pegboard. Um, that's right over there behind our tithe and offering box. Um, Make sure that you grab one of these as you're leaving. This is kind of what's going on and what's coming up. It lets you know a little bit more. We've had an influx of new people, right, over the past couple of weeks, and that's awesome, and we love that, and we want you guys to know uh, a little bit more about who we are um, and what we feel like God is calling us to do and to be a part of here in our community um, as we seek to introduce people to Jesus and to disciple them well. And so grab one of these. It's really important. There's some really helpful dates on here um, that I think is beneficial not only for tonight, which there is information on here that's beneficial for tonight. If you're a college student, make sure you grab one of these, and you'll know a little bit more about what I'm talking about. But also for our, our various men's studies and women's studies, as well as a little bit of a, a meet and greet time that we're going to have next Sunday morning uh, for people who are new or are relatively new. If you've come in and you've been here for maybe the past like couple of months, um, then we would invite you to come and to hang out with us next Sunday morning at like 945. And we're going to talk just a little bit. I'm going to be very casual, very open, very honest, share with you guys a little bit about um, who Christ the King is and what we feel like our mission is here in Carrollton. And so um, grab one of these, make time to come next week. We're super excited about all that the Lord is continuing to do. Um, and we want to talk with you about how maybe um, you can be a part of that. And so there is, is that. We're in Mark chapter 8. And today, for those of you that were with us last week, we're going to be doing a bit of a rewind. Um, we're going to actually go back and begin reading in chapter 8, verse one, and we're going to go through verse 21. Mark 8, there's a lot of continuity in Mark 8. And Mark 8 is amazing, 
uh, a, a major and an amazing turning point in this gospel, okay? Because what we see up until this point is that Jesus has been largely addressing the religious leaders about the things that he's saying, about the things that he is doing. They have major problems with it, and they continue to go into um, confront him about what he is saying, what he is doing, what he is not doing, what his disciples are not doing. Um, and so this week, we begin somewhat of a, of a transition, and we'll talk more about that uh, in just a, a few minutes. But we are continuing to observe the earthly ministry of Jesus. And we're continuing to, again this week from Mark 8, observe the world's response. We notice that the message of the kingdom of God is becoming much more inclusive. Inclusive in terms of who it is being presented to, okay? Who is hearing this news of the coming of the kingdom? All the way back as we began our time in Mark, right? Jesus coming out of the wilderness and beginning to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God, the gospel, right? The coming of the kingdom and, and Christ's calling us to be a part of it, right? This is what we've seen Jesus addressing each week, right? It's no longer news that is, is solely for the Jewish people, God's chosen and established people, but now for Gentiles, those outside of the nation, and those that are seen by many within the society at large as less than, right? As, 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 as bums, right? And, and um, outcasts, marginalized people, right? Dirty people. These are things that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. And as we see this inclusive message from Jesus, right, it's throwing a major wrench into everyone's expectations of what the, the Messiah was to look like and what the news of the coming of the kingdom of God here now would Look like, and so as we come to our passage this morning, and we think about what our the big idea is, we're going to see a few things that are going to inform it. But I think we're going to close with this idea of remembering. Okay, we're going to close with this idea, this encouragement from Jesus towards his followers to remember. And so, okay, for God's people gathered together this morning in this room, the encouragement will be to remember, okay? And for the skeptic in the room this morning, we're going to see through this passage the consequences for a rejection of the lordship of Jesus, right? That's a mouthful, right? But that's what we see. And there's just a few verses that are dedicated to this idea, but man, they are strong verses. They are powerful verses. And so the encouragement ultimately, let the cat out of the bag at the end, is going to be remember and, and submit, right? Confess, submit, repent, believe, right? This is where we're going, and this is what we're going to see kind of laid out on the page here as we continue our time in Mark chapter 8. Have you ever experienced one of those like monumental conversations, right? One of those conversations that almost um, it invokes this, okay, this is a really big deal, right? What's happening here, what's being said, where we're going, whether that's a conversation with mom and dad, right? Or with a boss or a neighbor or a child. There's a sense of expectation as you go into the conversation that this is about to be really, really, really big, right? That there's going to be some fireworks that happen as a result of this conversation. Sometimes those things are good and sometimes those things are bad. I am a huge fan of 
um, a little a little program called Netflix. Okay, you guys are familiar with Netflix, right? Um, it is it is going to be the end of uh, of network television unless MTV finally decides to start playing music again, and then perhaps there will be this resurrection of of cable television. Otherwise, it's going to be the end. Well, I was introduced a couple of years ago to this show um, that I've been a pretty avid watcher of over the past couple of years, and it just entered its final season, a little bittersweet. It's called Halt and Catch Fire, and I'm not, like, going to condone everything that's in the show by any, any means at all. But it is a very interesting show in that it revolves around um, the development of, like, personal computer and the beginning of what we now know is the internet age or just normal life, okay, because it's so a part of who we are and what we have going on. You say, why do you talk about that? Well, because the show does a really good job of encapsulating this idea that we're talking about. Right, that there are monumental conversations, these high points, these peaks that change things, right? A couple of guys sitting in a room around a table, dimly lit, having a conversation about this thing called the World Wide Web, okay? That, that's, a, that's a peak moment in, like, history, is it not, right? Because we are all experiencing, even on our, I mean, like here, like, we can do those things now, and we don't really know how to live apart from them, right? It's a, it's a monumental conversation that we see taking place over the course of this series. As we come out of the events of Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 10 and Jesus' feeding of the 4,000, we see one of these monumental conversations taking place here within God's Word. It's It's a challenging conversation between religious leaders and Jesus as well as a turning of the page in Mark's gospel. We're moving from the questions of the crowds to the confusion of the disciples, all here in our passage this morning from Mark chapter 8. Largely, up until this point, we've seen crowds of people gathered around Jesus. At times we see that he pulls away a little bit or he's in a boat and he's there more intimately with the twelve, or perhaps he pulls away to be by himself altogether to spend time with the Father. But for much of what we've seen through Mark's gospel, we just see people everywhere, broken people, ostracized people, desperate people. And as we approach this passage this morning from Mark 8, we see a turn, we see a transition take place. From, From now on, as Jesus continues now to move closer and closer towards Jerusalem and and the cross, his death, and ultimately the resurrection, we see much more conversation between Jesus and his disciples concerning his place, right? His, His kingship, his lordship, his being the Messiah. There's this huge question that's been revolving around all of these different groups that Jesus has been around, and the question is this. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? How will the religious leaders respond to Jesus in light of all that he has said, in light of all that he has done, and how will Jesus respond to them? And then, this morning, how will the disciples respond to Jesus, and how will Jesus respond to them? And then finally... How will we respond to Jesus? 
right? And then how will Jesus respond to us? This is one of the questions I think that this passage answers for us. What does Jesus despise and what does Jesus desire? And here's a hint, okay? We want to be on that desire end of the spectrum, right? We don't want to find ourselves on the side of the spectrum in which we are dwelling in and living in and chilling in and camping in all of the things that Jesus despises. And so what is that? And how do we flee from that and instead run headlong towards the desires of Christ for his people? And finally, in light of this, what will we do? Three observations that I want us to make note of as we approach our time in this in this text this morning. First, we're going to see a rejection. We're going to see a a rejection accompanied with a bit of foreshadowing as we look to John's account. We haven't really flipped back and forth through the various gospel accounts up until this point, but this morning we are going to. Because I think that there's something really awesome and really important that John includes within his account of what we see happening here in Mark 8 that helps to inform our understanding of all that Jesus is saying and where he's going. Are you guys with me so far? We're going to see a rejection. We're going to see a a warning, a warning against something that we have already seen addressed within the context of Mark chapter 8. So if you weren't here, what is that? Well, it's, it's familiarity. Right? Jesus warning his disciples against against what we will hear him refer to as a hardness of heart that we might know is not a rejection of his lordship, but certainly a venturing into the realm of familiar that affects the way that they understand and relate to and submit to Jesus. And so we're going to see a rejection, we're going to see a warning, and then we're going to pair two of them together and we're going to see a reminder and a challenge. A rejection, a warning, a reminder, and a challenge. And those reminder and challenge, we're pairing those guys up. That's going to be our last thing that we look at this morning. And so let's approach um, God's word this morning in in humility and reverence as I begin reading for us in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmutha. 
Now, here's our new passage for this morning. And so, so we're catching up. Here we go, beginning now in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Hey, let's pray together. Father, we are um, most grateful again just for our time together this morning and for your word. Um, You're preserving it. And now we ask that you would enlighten our our hearts um, to understand what you are saying to us here from Mark uh, chapter 8. That you might be glorified in our lives. That you might be glorified in our time together. Uh, this morning, that we might be encouraged and convicted, um, that we might be reminded of what you have done for us, um, and that it might transform the way that we live our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's start by addressing, looking at this issue of the rejection of, of first the Pharisees of Jesus, and then Jesus to the Pharisees, because we really see both displayed uh, through verses 11 and 13. Look at verse 11 with me. How do we begin our time this morning? We're coming out of the feeding of the 4,000, and we talked about last week all of the beautiful things that we see about Jesus from the first portion of Mark chapter 8, right? We're, We're encouraged that Jesus cares, right? That he remembers, that he meets the needs of his people, that he satisfies and sustains his people. When we closed our time last week by really wrapping our arms around this idea that it's not about the bread, right? That it's not about the bread. That as we come into this portion of Mark's gospel, we're not talking so much about physical bread, although we certainly need physical bread in order to sustain our existence, right? But we're seeing Jesus pointing to himself as the bread, the bread of life broken in order to bring life to a people, a rebel people, right? A a broken people, a dead people in need of a true miracle in order to be reconciled to God, in order to be brought into the family of God. This is all that we see last week. And then we come into this conversation 
with Jesus and the Pharisees, in which the Pharisees come to him and begin to argue with him. And so, note one, don't argue with Jesus. Okay, that's pretty simple, right? We're just talking like really clear, simple observations, arguing with Jesus. Turns out he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and he Okay, and so we'll just, that's just free. Okay, that's not even a main point. That's just a really simple observation from our time here. The Pharisees come and they begin to argue with him, seeking from him what? What are they seeking? They're seeking a sign. They're seeking a sign from heaven, seeking to, as we see Mark describe here, test him. And at this point, If you are at all familiar with Mark's gospel or any other gospel that lays out the miraculous works of Jesus and his authoritative teaching, if you're anything like me, you just want to kind of scream, right? We we just want to to scream, right, that, that the life and the ministry of Jesus is the sign. Right? The life and the ministry of Jesus is the sign. I, I totally believe that Mark is drawing out here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the absurdity of the question and the mindset of the request of these Pharisees without, without manufacturing anything. Right, the fact that we're coming on the tail end of seeing Jesus feed 4,000 people, yet again, his second mass feeding in just the last few chapters. And then we see the religious leaders requesting from him a, a sign. That's absurd, right? That's, that's crazy. And I think that Mark is drawing that out for, for us. A, a mindset that Christians throughout the ages have been able to relate to. Because while we see it here and we go, man, this is absurd, this is crazy, like we just read in the three minutes that we read through our passage this morning about Jesus feeding 4,000 people, and then you're asking for a sign, there's an intentionality to it, and it's an intentionality that brings to light a reality that you and I can connect with, okay? Because this is the struggle of the Christian life. This is our struggle. This is a practice that you and I are not altogether unfamiliar with, right? This, This show me, show me you're real, show me you care, show me that everything is going to be okay. Have you ever asked questions like that? Lord, show me that everything is going to be okay, right? Show me that you care. Of course, of course, (laughs) of course we've asked questions like that. And so there's a sense in which we read these first few verses and we want to like scream, right? We want to go, are you kidding me? Like, of course, like he just fed 4,000 people. Why are you testing him? Why are you asking him for a sign? And then we step back, right, off of the page a little bit and begin to look internally into our own hearts and our own minds, our own questions. And we go, man, how many times have I seen the Lord Prove himself faithful, be that in my own experiences or through my time in his word. The struggle, the plight of the human condition, is God faithful? Will he do it? Does he care? Can he hear? Will he work? Will he save? Will he come? These are all questions that that you probably, if you're anything like me, have asked before. And so we, we pick up here, even on the tail end, 
with this, this remember theme. Right, this, this, this remember theme. As Christians, this should be to some degree frustrating while at the same time exposing the obviousness of Christ's kingship. Why? Why? Well, because he is doing signs everywhere. Right? He's doing signs everywhere. We know that. We've seen it as we journey through Mark's gospel. And Jesus knows that. And all of this helps us to understand his response, right? We're reading it and we're going, man, this makes me want to scream. I'm frustrated for you answering such a silly question, addressing such a silly issue. How does Jesus respond? Well, we see that. Again, it says in our first few verses that he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is not the first time that we've seen Jesus do this over the past couple of chapters. Right? As Jesus observes the brokenness of the human condition, right? He, he oftentimes, it, it's as though it, it, just, it just sucks it out of him, right? That he just looks up towards the sky and he sighs. Again, here, mourning, as he did before, the condition of humanity, right? The, the brokenness of of humanity, the rebelliousness of humanity. We hear it and we go, I want to scream. And Jesus hears it. And, and again, out of what we saw last week, right? This, this compassionate heart, this clear realization and understanding of what he's come to do. He looks up and he just, he just sighs, right? It's like, really? Really? Again, again with this, again with, with the sign stuff. And he said, so we go, we're going to go, we see compassion, but we also see, men that there is serious consequence. We're going to talk about this at the, at the conclusion of our time together. But there is a consequence that comes, right, with rejecting the lordship of Jesus, with addressing his, or rejecting his deity. What does Jesus do? He said, why does this generation seek a sign? You guys should know better than anyone. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now, in Mark's account, there is no reference to a future sign, right? Just this monologue from Jesus that results with him loading the boat and leaving them. But if we look to Matthew's account, we see an elaboration on this conversation, Right, he provides a little bit more detail in terms of what was said from Jesus to these leaders who have just requested from him a sign. And it relates to the signs being withheld. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter Matthew, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 4. This is the same account, it's just Matthew's, um, Matthew's recording of it. Jesus says this: an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And so again, like Jesus off the, top, off the top rope, right? Like here it is, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So there's this implicit rejection of Mark 8 that we see made explicit in Matthew chapter 16. What does he say? But no sign will be given to it except, okay, so in Mark's account, no sign. Jesus loads the boat and he goes away to the other side. In Matthew's account, Jesus says that there will be no sign given except the sign of Jonah. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. No sign will be given except the sign 
of Jonah. So in verses 1 through 10, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples and 4,000 Gentiles in this really incredible and really interesting way. We see a king. Right? We see the king who pursues a rebellious people in desolate places and satisfies them. And he does so out of a heart of love, not with a fleeting or fading satisfaction offered by the things of the world, but a satisfaction and joy that is rooted ultimately in him that proves to be both temporal and eternal. Jesus multiplied a few loaves of bread and some fish, and he fed a mob of people. And in doing so, he pointed to himself as the truer and better bread. We're reviewing what we see in the first 10 verses. There's a reason we read that in the beginning, because these things are so closely connected. And yet, they request another sign. And through that, they make it clear that there is, there is no acceptance based on what Christ has done for them up until this point. Show us something, show us something else. And so, so what are we to believe about the sign that they requested? Because we see in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus references a future sign that will be given, that will be provided, the sign of Jonah, which is ultimately, and we'll touch base on this later, a foreshadowing to the resurrection, right? Jonah swallowed by the sea in the belly of the fish, there three days. As we go to the resurrection, we see Jesus upon the cross, pours out his life, buried in the ground, there three days, and resurrects back to life. And so this is where we're going. But what do we think about the, re the rejection of Jesus as it relates to their request for a sign? Show us a sign. Why couldn't you show them a sign, Jesus? Like if they're saying with a sign, we will believe, why is Jesus withholding a sign? Well, I think we can say, based on what we see in other places, that they wouldn't have believed anyway. And we know that, not because that's our opinion or we'd like manifest that somewhere and shaped it up and put it here for you guys to see, but because that's what we see in Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, we see this, this story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. I'm going to read this story really quick. It's like family story time. Everybody sit back, take a load off for a second, right? Everybody's like, oh my gosh, like, oh, this is crazy. Lean back for a second and just listen to this. Listen to this story. What do we think about the sign? Here's what we see in Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who, who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. And so we got a rich man and we got a poor man. We got a rich man with like purple threads, and we've got Lazarus covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. This sounds familiar for some of us. Um, desires to feed from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Right? 
How does Abraham respond? But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus and like men are bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so what do we get right here? Right here we see that for the hurting, right, that there is comfort. There's comfort in the temporal. There's comfort in the eternal that is found in Christ. Verse 26 and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There is this chasm that exists between the rich man and between Lazarus. There's anguish, and then there is, is pure joy on the other side of the chasm. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And so here's what I'm requesting. I get no water. Okay, send Lazarus to speak to my family so that they don't end up in the same place that I am, this place of anguish separated on the other side of the chasm with no hope of crossing over. Send them and tell them. What's the response? Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. Right? They have the scriptures. There's no need for one to go and to tell because they have it. Right? They, they know. They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Lazarus died. If you send Lazarus to talk to him, then they'll believe. Then they'll repent, as though Moses and the prophets were not, uh, were not enough. Verse 31, he said to them, get this. This is the whole point. This is the whole point of the story right here. The climax. Here we are. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so what's our issue here, right? What's the, what's the issue? What's the big deal, Jesus? These guys are requesting a sign. Show them a sign. Surely if you do that, they will believe. Based on what we see in Luke chapter 16, the heart the human heart is so hard that even the dead might rise. And apart from, right, a miraculous work of the Spirit within people, right, there is no acceptance. Right? It's not, it's not happening. They will not believe, even if a man is risen from the dead. And so Jesus knows this. And so he says, no, the only sign that you're going to see, based on what we see in Matthew's account, is the sign of Jonah. Jesus, following his words to the religious leaders, points towards his resurrection as the truer and better Jonah, rising not from the depth of the sea, but from death. And here we see the cost of continual rejection of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He says, no sign is going to be given, and he gets into the boat, and he leaves. And he leaves. We see here an example of a heart that has been hardened towards the divinity of Jesus. 
which is contrasted next to the hearts of the disciples that Jesus addresses as well. And so first there is this rejection, and in the midst of this rejection, there is this warning. What is the consequence for a continual rejection of Jesus, a heart that is continuously made harder and harder and harder, that rejects and pushes Jesus away? Well, eventually he loads the boat and he goes to the other side. That's what we see here as it relates to Jesus and the Pharisees, at least this particular group. The next thing that we see is a warning in verses 14 and 15. Everybody good? Y'all with me? Okay, here we go. Part, part two, a warning, verses 14 and 15. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and so now we're transitioning. Not only in our time together this morning, but in the Gospel of Mark, we are transitioning. We're going to see this focus now, not so much on the masses, but on addressing the confusion of the disciples. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned to them, saying, watch out. Okay, so again, Jesus says, watch out. Watch out, right? Watch out. Beware, he says, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so what is this? What is leaven, and why is Jesus relating it here to his disciples, the Pharisees, and Herod? Well, leaven is an ingredient that is in Bread. Every week we take the Lord's Supper and there's no like leaven in it. We're taking unleavened bread. Every week it's flat. It doesn't rise, okay? And so Jesus says here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Beware of something that he's going to address in just a moment that we're going to unpack that is going to, uh, it will affect you. As you cook, it will affect you, right? In this case, the Pharisees, their leaven being evil, arrogance and pride. And in the case of Herod, the wicked king who throughout Mark acts as a, uh, what we might call a counter Jesus, right? We have Jesus, the good king, the righteous king, the holy king, the self-sacrificial king on one side. And then on the other side, we have wicked Herod, right? So there's this contrast between earthly king and heavenly king as we work our way, as we work our way through. In the case of Herod, it is, it is power. And we see that in each of them, it is as though it is this cancer that is capable of bringing about a total corruption. Paul references this in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. He again speaks to this issue of uh, leaven. I'm going to move this because this is creaking right here really, really bad. He says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so just a little bit, okay, just a little bit of leaven, just a little bit of evil, just a little bit of arrogance, just a little bit of power is capable of of transforming the entire lump. This is in the family of a statement that perhaps we're a little bit more familiar with, that is this, one bad apple ruins the whole bunch, right? Or the whole bushel, maybe that's what it is, right? One bad apple ruins the whole bushel. You ever heard that before? We're, we're, we're talking like distant cousins here, right, of the leaven example that Jesus uses. And it's a warning ultimately from Jesus to those who are following after him about the dangers of sin, about the dangers of leaven capable of hardening hearts against Jesus and the message of the kingdom. As we're talking, as we're seeing Jesus address the hardness of heart here within these, within these guys, which we'll see in just a few moments, it's not about a rejection of Jesus, but it's instead this issue of, of something else. 
right? It's, it's an issue of relating to Jesus. And so let's talk a little bit about sin for a moment. Right, let's talk a little bit about sin, the leaven that is capable of hardening our hearts against the message of the kingdom. How do we respond? What do we do? Right? With sin. How do we respond to sin? Well, the first thing that we do as we are warned about this leaven that makes a, a huge mess of our hearts is we identify it. Right? We identify sin. Sin that we all have. Right? You here sitting now can think of particular sins that are an ongoing struggle for you that you find oftentimes bring you into this tension. Right? Pulling you away from the kingdom and instead pulling you towards unrighteousness, things of the world, things of the flesh, right? Uh, pride, lust, idolatry, hate, busyness are just a few examples. And so, how do we respond to these issues of sin identified in our lives that can very easily become leaven that bring about this incredible corruption? What do we do? We identify it. And then we kill it, right? We, we, we kill sin. Kill sin or sin will be killing you. And so then the question arises, how do we do that? Right? How do we kill sin in our lives? The sins that you know of, the sins that you can identify with, the sins that you struggle with. How do we kill those things in our lives? The only way, here it is, the only way that sin can be killed in our lives is through first the strength of the Spirit and then a greater adoration for Christ. Let me say that again. The only way that we can kill sin in our lives, the only way that we can recognize sin in our lives is through the strength of the Spirit and an increased adoration for Christ. If we leave it just there, and okay, let's kill sin without ever venturing into the realm of greater adoration for Christ, what is our tendency? Well, to go back to it, right? And you don't go back to something that you've killed, right? You, you bury it in the ground, you mark it, so perhaps you remember it, and then you move on, right? And, and so there is this way, there is this means, there is this how in which sin can be killed in our lives, but it's not in our strength. You and I are incapable of killing sin in and of ourselves, the sin that you're struggling with, that you feel as though it is too great, that it is overcoming you, right? That it is constantly defeating you, that it is condemning you, right? In and of yourself, you are incapable of killing that sin. But the hope for the follower of Christ is that as the Spirit of God indwells us and we grow in adoration and worship for Jesus, that we can, by the power that he provides, kill sin in our lives, that we might pursue after holiness and righteousness and begin to look less like the world, get this, more like Jesus. That's a pretty solid goal for the Christian life, right? That's a pretty solid goal. Like, here's what I want to do. New Year's resolution this coming year. I want to hate sin and I want to look more like Jesus. That's pretty solid, right? Write that one down. You guys can have that one, right? The most natural response to this statement then is, okay, great, right? I get that. I'm on board with that. I'm on board with killing sin. I'm on board with, uh, with, with you know, resisting the desires of the flesh and the power of the spirit and pursuing after righteousness. I'm good with that. 
but how in the world do I do it? What are practical steps that we can take to grow in an adoration for Christ and kill sin in our life, thus avoiding the leaven that Jesus is uh, bringing up here in his conversation with his disciples? Let's talk about it in terms of earthly relationships. If we're talking about growing in an adoration for someone, we're talking about growing in a, 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 a deeper love for someone, what are some things that we can do? Well, if I think about it in terms of like my relationship with Courtney, my wife, right? Um, if there is this desire right, to grow in intimacy and adoration for her, what are some things that I can begin to do? Well, I can spend time with her. Right? I can spend time with her. I can, I can talk to her. I can learn more about her. And you are, get this, married people, like you would, amen, affirm. You're always learning new things about your spouse. Right? You're always, you're always growing. Right? You're always exploring and knowing them better and deeper. I can serve her. Right? These are all things that I can do to grow in an adoration for Courtney. Right? So if we desire greater adoration for Christ, if we desire great adoration for God, and we consider these earthly illustrations, how then do we respond in light of those to grow in adoration as it relates to Him? Well, here's a few things that we can do. We can spend time with Him, right? Spend time with the Lord, spend time with God, right? We see Jesus doing this as He removes Himself from chaotic situations and seasons and spends time there in intimacy with the Father, enjoying fellowship and community with Him. Right, we can hear from Him in His Word, right? We can hear from Him in His Word. I just want to hear from God. I want to know God. Here it is, right? Here's how we hear from God. Here's how we know God. Last week, we unpacked three points that helped us to understand to a greater degree, the character of Christ. And it's all from his word. Like, we don't make it up, right? It's right there. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're going, man, like, I'm all about growing in an adoration for Christ. Like, I'm all about growing in an adoration for God. But, like, how, what if I'm not feeling it? Man, here's what you do. Abide in his word. Right? Know him in his word. Know him in his, his word. The agnostic belief that there is a God but knowing him is impossible, crumbles as the Bible is embraced as God's true and perfect word. God's word, as it is illuminated by God's spirit, makes our all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, self-existent, sustaining, creating, jealous, just, and gracious God knowable. And so abide in his word. Love his word, man. We are a church that loves God's word, okay? Love his word. Meditate on his word and talk with him through our mediator, Christ. We can approach the Father. We can approach the Father in confidence and boldness because of the work of Jesus. And so go to him, right? Confess to him. Right? Love him, speak to him through our mediator, Jesus. And then I'll give you one more. So spend time with him, and I'll give you like five examples of how you can do that. Here's another one. Spend time with God's people. 
Spend time with God's people. And I'll add a third one. This one's completely off the cuff, but it's awesome, right? Spend time engaged in God's mission, right? Spend time engaged in God's mission. Well, what's God's mission? Man, God's mission is the redemption of a, of a lost people, of a sinful people, unto himself through the sacrifice of Christ. You go and tell that, right? Go and tell that. Go and tell that to other people. Many of you guys, you've got a brand new community around you. You've got like 35 people that are in your class like tomorrow that you've known for like six hours total. you got people around you, man. God's, God's put you into a position. For those of you who are working jobs, right, you have a people around you. For those of you who have roommates or families, you have a people around you. And you want to know God? Know him in his word. Spend time with his people and spend time engaged in his mission. That's good stuff. Let's continue on. Last point. A reminder and a challenge. Verses 16 through 21. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. We got no bread. Coming off the tail end of Jesus, multiplying a couple of loaves of bread to feed up mass people. What shall we do? And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the facts that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? This gets it back into the realm of what we're talking about last week, right? That it's not about the bread, right? They have in the boat with them the bread of life. Who gives life? Who sustains life? He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not, there it is, remember. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of bread pieces did you take up? And they said to him, well, now that I think about it, 12. Verse 20. And the seven from the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him again, Seven, the disciples are becoming more and more comfortable with the works of Jesus to the point that Jesus correlates their condition with a hardness of heart, one that is so familiar with the things of Jesus that they've almost shut it off. And this is where we're turning the page. This is the transition, the confusion that the disciples have concerning Christ's messiahship. His lordship. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? Here you would think the disciples, they've been traveling around with Jesus for like a while now. That they would have it, that they would get it. But there's still this issue. right? There's still this struggle to know all that Jesus is saying and all that Jesus is doing. He said to them in verse 21, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? They become so familiar with Jesus, right? They become so uh, so comfortable with Jesus that it, that Jesus here actually creates this correlation between their feeling toward Him and the condition of their. And so we might ask ourselves as we begin to close our time this morning, what is the condition of our hearts? Where do we find ourselves in this passage? Do we find ourselves amongst the religious leaders, 
right? Perhaps on the verge, like bordering on the side of skepticism, right? About this whole Christianity thing and, and following after Jesus and who he is and what he can do and why we need him. Or do we find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum in which we are so comfortable in our Christian life that our hearts have grown stagnant, right? That they're becoming hard as a result of the familiarity that we feel towards Jesus. Through this, we see a series of questions. Maybe let's just address one of them. How does Jesus display here what he despises and what he desires. Jesus does not respond well to requests such as those of the Pharisees in Mark 8 because he knows the motive. He knows the heart out of which they ask. Jesus desires what? A broken and contrite heart. We're closing our time together here. Hang with me for these last few minutes. Jesus desires a broken and contrite heart. One well-known theologian and pastor said it like this. Being a Christian means being broken and contrite. Being a Christian means being broken and contrite. And so what is the good news? The good news is that the gospel brings us here. Right? That the gospel brings us here as we are confronted with the cost of our sin and the love of God to pay it. The Pharisees could not grasp Jesus as the Messiah because while he was all that had been spoken of, he was nothing like what they expected, and they rejected him. And as a result, Jesus left them. And so if the Bible is true, you have to consider the consequences of one's rejection of Jesus. And it compels us towards something. Right? For, for some of us, it compels us towards consideration and submission. Consideration of the person of Christ and a confession, a seeing our inability, seeing our rebellion, seeing our rejection of a good and righteous and holy God. Seeing our inability, being confronted with the deadness of our hearts and the brokenness of our bones, and then submitting to his Deity, submitting to his person, submitting to his call to repent and to believe. That's what it looks like on one side. And for the believer, a consideration of the consequences for those who do not know Jesus forever without him in the very real place that is hell that we see represented there in Matthew chapter 16 in which this chasm exists and there is no crossing over from one side to the other right the day is coming in which that reality is reality for perhaps some of you the good news of the gospel is this right that, that Christ pursues a people Right, that he pursues a people like the hound of heaven and that he brings us, he calls us, he beckons us unto himself, into his fold, that we might enjoy all of the experience on the side of the chasm in which joy dwells, in which Christ dwells, in which eternity with God is enjoyed as opposed to this other side that is overcome with darkness and absence. As believers, that should stir our hearts. 
right? As God's people, that should stir our hearts, that this is indeed a a reality. This ought to inspire us not towards complacency, but towards action. It shouldn't breed within us comfort, but it should breed within us courage and commitment. And I want you to know this. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone in your feelings. You're not alone in your mission. But God is with his people, and his people are with you. And that's encouraging. And so I want us to ask ourselves, have our hearts become hardened? Have our hearts become hardened? And then I want us to realize this great truth that Jesus is committed to the transformation of the human heart. That Jesus is committed to the transformation of the human heart. They don't see it now, right? They don't remember now, but following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they will. And so if you're in this place of show me, I'm here to say to you that he has. He has shown us. Right? He, he has shown us his power, and he's shown us his concern, and he has shown us his, his commitment, and he has done so at the cross. And so if you're in this place this morning, if you're in this place this morning where you're questioning the care and the commitment and the concern of Jesus, look to the cross. Right, look to the cross where we see his care and his concern and his commitment displayed. And then stand in awe of the hope of the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. Man, Jesus knew that his people had like really short-term memory issues, right? The same issues that we see these guys struggling with here, man, we struggle with it, Right? And so it's so encouraging that as we close our time together this morning, we ask ourselves these series of questions, perhaps some questions that lead our hearts into a place of conviction, right? That we, as a fellowship, go to the table and we, we participate in this ordinance that the Lord gave to his church to remember what he has done. And here's the good news, that it's not ultimately, it's not, it doesn't all hinge on our remembering, but it all hinges on his remembering. And he remembers. And he remembers. He remembers his people, he remembers his covenant, he remembers his mission. And we put all of our hope upon that. And so as we approach the table this morning, let's consider these things. Let's ask these, a series of questions, perhaps of the condition of our own of our own hearts? Where do we see uh, Pharisaic tendencies within us? And where do we see, um, you know, disciple issue, you know, questions within us? Let's repent of those things. Let's repent of those things and let us enjoy this time together with God's people uh, and, and ultimately with Him as He dwells with us um, as we close our time together.